Welcome to this edition of Maine the Way Life Could Be. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. At the outset of this series, we invited anyone who was interested to participate in a Zoom call to help us gather information on what folks saw as major challenges facing Maine people during the lifetime of those alive today. One of those challenges involves how we'll be able to make our livings in the Maine of the near future as traditional industries wane and as our population grows older. On today's program, we'll be talking with three experts who have studied these questions from a variety of perspectives. We begin with Charles Colgan, Professor Emeritus of Public Policy and Management in the Edmund S. Muskie School of Public Service at the University of Southern Maine. Colgan is currently a senior fellow at the Center for the Blue Economy in Monterey, California. He served as chair of the State of Maine Consensus Economic Forecasting Commission from 1992 to 2010. Prior to his work at USM, he served in the Maine State Planning Office under three governors. We began our conversation with Charles Colgan with this very basic but very important question. What would be your thoughts on how we might look at our workforce in the next, say, 20 years or so? and how we might make sure we have a reasonable match between the number of workers available and the number of jobs that they have to perform. Of course, Maine was destined to have a workforce challenge in this and succeeding decades long before we hit the great resignation of the pandemic, which upended not only older states like Maine, but virtually every part of the U.S., it turns out that, at least based on the current analyses, most of the Great Resignation took place among older workers, particularly people 62 and older who shifted over to Social Security. And so we lost a big part of the transitional workforce in their 60s who were key to getting us to a place where there could be more of a balance between the younger and the older workforce. Clearly, this is a much bigger problem in rural areas of the state. Maine is up through about 2018, had very little domestic in-migration, that is people moving to Maine from elsewhere in the United States. That shifted before the pandemic. It accelerated greatly during the pandemic. And we're waiting to see what the latest census numbers shows, but is kept up since then. But it's still not enough to balance the exiting of the workforce from the older population. And that's only going to get worse because the older population is going to do nothing but get older. People who are willing to work in their 60s or 70s are not going to be keen on doing it in their 80s and 90s. And so acceleration will continue. So there are basically two ways that this problem is going to be addressed. The first is through immigration. And by immigration, I mean people moving to Maine, younger people moving to Maine. The good news there is that the pandemic showed that you can remotely work from anywhere for many types of jobs, something like 60% of all the jobs in professional and technical services can be done remotely and likely will continue to be done remotely. We're reinventing the office even as we speak. All large organizations are trying to figure out what to do with this hybrid workplace. That's one of the good news things is you can work for a company in Boston and live in Maine 
and have a lot bigger house for the same amount of money. That's a really important fact. The problem, of course, is you're solving Massachusetts's workforce problems, not me. And so that's, a, that's good news, but it's not as good as it might be. Demographically, we'll get more of a balance. Traditionally, the way in which this problem has been solved is with international in-migration, particularly of young people from other countries who, in the migrating generation, generally take lower paid work. And in the succeeding generations, move up through the career possibilities. We've tapped into that a little bit. Maine has become slightly more diverse and had periods of in-migration. But of course, American immigration policy is such a complete and total mess that Maine has not been able to systematically plan recruiting and integrating a large foreign population. We've done that partially successfully with groups such as those from Somalia, but that was long before the current policy confusion got started. There is likely to be some more of that in the future. There are places in Maine where much of the medical staff is people from Asia, South Asia, Indians, Pakistanis, and so on. They're providing most of the doctors in the hospitals. So some of that will professional staff will come in and that will make a difference. I think, however, in the long term, the basic force at work here is that there is always going to be a labor shortage in Maine. And faced with a labor shortage, the tendency is to shift from labor to capital. That means we're going to employ more machines, more computer technology, more artificial intelligence. It will not be surprising, for example, in a decade to see very, very few workers in fast food restaurants. You'll order on your app or you'll order on a computer screen in the restaurant. I was just in a restaurant at the McDonald's down Thomaston last week, and there was one person out front. Everything else was done on a computer screen. I would not be surprised to see in the restaurant business and other outward-facing, consumer-facing types of businesses, a lot fewer workers going to be needed because they just aren't there. And so we're going to find ways to employ technologies so that an entire restaurant, for example, could be run with only one or two people in the kitchen and everything else is handled by computers and other technologies. Same thing is likely to be true in feels like home healthcare. Just last week, uh, Apple introduced a watch that now does most of monitoring on a routine basis performed by home health people. Technology is really going to substitute for a lot of labor that we've been doing. It won't substitute for all of it. It's never going to completely replace people. I think that's an illusion, at least in the 21st century. I can't speak for the 22nd. When labor has become scarce and expensive, businesses have and other organizations have found a way to substitute technology or capital for labor. And that's been going on now for 200 years, and I see no reason for it to stop. Indeed, it'll only accelerate. You mentioned some years ago when you were stepping down from your professorial position at Southern Maine that one of the things looking forward that you saw and that you viewed as a a misapprehension is that Maine is certainly advertised as, and many people think that it is, 
a rural economy, you suggested that that was probably not currently accurate anymore. Can you say something more about that? It used to be the old uh, triumvirate lumber, fish, and potatoes. That was Maine. And there was a lot of truth to it because paper industry comprised 35, 40% of the GDP. And, and the rest of the lumber industry was, was as much as half. In those days, the other big industry was shoes and clothing because uh, we had a very large population of women in rural areas who essentially comprised a workforce for the shoe mills and the clothing mills. Labor-intensive jobs like that always migrate to the lowest uh, wage place. They left Maine for South Carolina and North Carolina, and then they left South Carolina and North Carolina for Vietnam and Central America. So that was one shift. There was a shift away from the production of goods in rural areas in Maine for a whole variety of reasons. At the same time, there was a rise, a significant rise in those types of jobs that are found in cities. In particular, healthcare, professional and technical services, education services. In the beginning, uh, retail, but that's become much less important over time. The biggest employer in Maine is Maine Health, which runs Maine Medical Center. Northern Lights, the second biggest employer, which runs Mercy Hospital in Maine and the hospitals in the Bangor area. Healthcare is the largest industry in Maine, and because it's technologically intensive and much more efficient when it's all done in big places, that tends to be in the cities. Rural healthcare has suffered enormously. The vast majority of rural hospitals have closed or been taken over by these large conglomerates. And of course, the other big area is professional and technical services, lawyers, engineers, consultants of all kinds. And so the decline in the rural industries and the growth in the urban industries means that where once the rural areas of Maine accounted for maybe 60%, 65% of the state's GDP, now it's almost entirely flipped with about, about two-thirds being produced in the urban areas. That's a trend that will not reverse what do you see as a sort of result in terms of population if the work is concentrating in urban areas does that mean that rural areas will become either much less places of opportunity for work or they'll become havens for those who are able to work remotely well that's already happened that horse has left the barn and it's already in the next county it's already happening uh, to a great extent. The real question in rural areas of Maine is, is there anything that can replace the older jobs and depend on your being in a rural area, not simply remote work, which is work you could be doing in an urban area, but technology allows you to do it in a rural area. I can see a few areas where substantial growth is possible. One is renewable energy. To put it bluntly, we are going to need a lot of land for the amount of wind and solar that is going to be needed to replace fossil fuels. One of the things rural Maine has is a lot of land. It won't be the same kinds of jobs, but Maine was a pioneer in wind generation 20 years ago. We've had a small but very 
productive wind energy industry in Maine, all of it in rural Maine, all of it sitting up in mountains in western Maine and central Maine. When we add offshore wind to that, as we will by the end of this decade, and perhaps begin to build some, some substantial wind in Aroostook County, if we can ever get Aroostook County connected to the rest of the country. There is a vast amount of potential for wind generation in Aroostook County to supplement farming. Climate change offers some significant threats to rural Maine, the largest of which are probably to forests and fisheries, but also some real opportunities. I think a second area is healthcare. That's where the older population is going to be. And we're going to have to find ways to keep the healthcare infrastructure in rural Maine. Federal policy has been marginally helpful, but I think anybody in rural healthcare will tell you that it's not nearly enough. Other industries like aquaculture, the last area is tourism which is going to have to reinvent itself around whatever new transportation technologies are going to be deployed after the automobile. Say, take a train to Rockland and then just pick up a car as part of your train ticket. So we're going to reinvent that whole system. A lot of the work in that restructuring of the transportation system to support tourism is going to take place in rural areas. So I'm not writing off rural areas at all. In fact, I think there's some significant opportunities out there if we can be aggressive at foreseeing them and then taking advantage of them. What do you think are steps that we can take that will help us to imagine and execute the kind of trends that you have just been talking about? particularly trying to have the jobs that are available match with the people who are available to fill them? There is one key action, and it has to be taken first by leaders, and I, uh, including leaders of public organizations, private organizations, non-governmental organizations, and then has to be bought into by pretty much everybody. Uh, And that is that the future is going to look a lot different than the past. Much of our efforts today are spent trying to either reclaim the past or preserve it, keep everything from changing. That's not an option. Even if you don't want things to change and you go run up and you hide on the main coast, sea level rise is headed for you. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than any other place on earth. Avoiding change is not an option, and people have got to see that and recognize that in change is opportunity. This is a radically different situation in America than its history. In most of American history up to the post-war era, America has been a place that embraced change, shaped change, welcomed it. Mark Twain said it best in Huckleberry Finn. The last line of Huckleberry Finn is, we can always light up for the territories. Always someplace new to go to. Today, we vigorously defend every piece of land, every community, every house against change. Until we stop doing that, and until we start recognizing that the territories are out there, they're just different, we're not going to get anywhere, anything done. You talked about a a new set of opportunities. 
who are the opportunities going to be for when you talk about jobs at fast food restaurants being replaced by technology that can replace the people who are doing the front of house kinds of jobs? What do you anticipate will be the impact on the people who were formerly in those types of jobs? There will be very, very few unskilled jobs in the economy. Getting the right skills is partly a function of what does the education system teach, and that's a can of worms. There will be very few unskilled jobs. The so-called burger flipper job will turn into programmers for the computers in the McDonald's. Instead of being able to be told how to put so many burgers and so many fries in a bag, you'll have to know C++ in order to write the programs and fix the programs in the McDonald's. So there are very few unskilled jobs. People who know computers will have an advantage in virtually everything. Whether you get taught computers or learn them or uh, other kinds of skills, the economy will be even more unkind than it is now to people who have meager or no technical skill. That was Professor Emeritus Charles Colgan with his sense of how our workforce and work opportunities may look in the near future here in Maine. You're listening to Maine, the way life could be here on Community Radio, WERU-FM. Our next guest is James Mile, an economic policy analyst at the Maine Center for Economic Policy and author of the Center's State of Working Maine 2021 report. We began by asking him to describe the purpose of the report and how it was put together. We generally take it as like an opportunity to look at a snapshot of Maine's economy, but specifically sort of how the economy is working for everyday workers. A lot of the issues are sort of like looking at the workforce, issues that might be affecting people who aren't able to work or what conditions are like for work. The report had a big twist this year because of COVID. What do you think we learned or should learn and what lesson might that have for us in the future? I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the interesting things when you look back at the last two years or so and sort of dealing with COVID-19 and the economic fallout from it, there's sort of two different things at once. You've, you've got the uh, ways in which sort of the COVID pandemic sort of really threw some new challenges at us, but there are a number of ways in which the pandemic and the economic fallout for it, they really continued or exacerbated some existing trends as well. So I think there are some things we can learn in terms of, you know, making sure that we have systems in place that can really cope with large economic shocks. We saw that the unemployment insurance system um, didn't work as well as we wanted it to. It wasn't as painless for workers as it should have been to get the support they needed. So, you know, our safety net programs like that could be more robust. And then I think you have patterns where you see, you know, the, the COVID pandemic and recession really showed we had a group of workers that we were talking about as being essential workers. The workers that make, make the economy go around and make all of our lives work in one way or another, whether those are grocery store workers, people working at hospitals, the teachers and childcare workers who look after our children. Even though we were calling those workers essential, they're often some of the most underpaid and kind of poorly treated workers. That's one of the things that I think, you know, there really is a lesson there that certainly I think a lot of workers have learned. Their work really is essential, even and but not always valued as such. And so I think that's one reason why we've really seen the pattern of people, workers, especially a lot of workers in service industries now, you know, demanding higher wages, demanding better working conditions. And sort of if their employers aren't responding to that by valuing them kind of in the way that the essential 
function that they're playing. These workers are either walking off the job and going somewhere else, or they're you know, looking to form unions and other ways to um, increase their working power while they're in there. So I think we're seeing workers really realize that, and in many cases, employers too, but I think there's some catching up to be done there. Do you think that as we move forward, given the fact, you know, if you walk down any street in Maine, every other store window has a now hiring sign in it, there is supposedly a labor shortage here in Maine, particularly of what might be called essential workers, people who have to show up on the job and who have to interact with other people, generally speaking. The demographics of Maine don't suggest that there's going to be a huge increase in the number of people of working age. If anything, we might see more of a difficulty in this respect over the next 10 or 20 years. Are there any lessons from what you have reviewed and seen that would help us to figure out how we might deal with that? I think the workforce shortage is, again, a really good example of a pre-existing trend we were already seeing and one that in many ways has been made worse by the pandemic and its fallout. We've had reports in Maine for a number of years that have really been warning about this demographic crunch that we've seen, in which you know Maine is the oldest state and it's you know the population is getting older disproportionately because young people are moving out and older folks are you know retirees are moving into the state. That's a longer term trend that we've had warnings about and have had to grapple with for a while. And I think sort of recent events have made that shortage more acute in some sectors, you know, like restaurants and hospitality, because people have moved out of those and taken other jobs. You know, you see this in the direct care workforce as well, you know, jobs that maybe pay slightly better and have less stress and better working conditions. So there's sort of like two different problems there. And for some of those industries, whether those are like hospitality and service industries, care work, I think especially, there are ways in which sort of employers need to be able to make those conditions just better for people, to be able to pay them better, to be able to have them, you know, work on sometimes working more predictable schedules, sometimes having them access to benefits at work and vacation time. Um, to be able to get a better work-life balance. But I think over the longer term, kind of one of the things you pointed out or hinted at, just our overall workforce shortage is really important. That essentially relies on making Maine kind of a better place to live and work for people, better working conditions and fostering the creation of some you know, higher paying jobs. But I think also having basic rights in place for workers in Maine, sort of you know, having access to things like a paid family medical leave program, those are all things that sort of like lawmakers can do to make Maine an, an attractive place to live and work. That essentially means keeping more people in the state, meaning that young people don't have to leave for better opportunities elsewhere, but also attracting more people to live in Maine. We have seen sort of a bit of a improvement in that situation. We have seen more immigrants coming to Maine, but also people just moving from other states. That has improved in recent years, but there's still more work to do to be able to keep up with the demand we have for workers in the state. Some of the people who are moving here from other states are moving here because they plan to telecommute and they're still going to have jobs mm. back in their home state. Often they are better off financially than the people in the towns that they move into. One of the issues that we've been talking about in this series is housing and how in some of the service centers, people who provide the services can't afford to live in or near mm. the mm. town anymore because a lot of people are buying up the real estate. It's probably early to tell what impact that has, but do you have any sense of what might be moving forward with a lot of the workforce or who knows what percentage it will be working 
actually for companies in other states rather than working here in Maine or for Maine companies? Clearly over the last year or so, that's been like an increasing trend. And I think like you've highlighted again, I think some of the problems that people are seeing. I don't think Maine should be in a position of sort of trying to exclude these workers or restrict them. I think there are certainly sort of advantages to people coming and potentially spending money in local communities, but it does clearly raises a question about housing. Um, I think it really highlights the need to make sure that we have equitable and fair taxation systems in place so that if we have high income individuals in the state who are moving to the state, you know, that's potentially an opportunity to have those folks pay their fair share of taxes, then using that money to provide services um, to help other Mainers. I think there are ways to benefit from this, this influx of new people into the state, but I do think it requires some planning and some policy measures like that to make sure that we don't just end up in a situation, you know, where all the housing is bought up and a lot of people are priced out of their homes. You know, there have been proposals to increase the real estate transfer tax for people moving from out of state or for high income homes, putting some of that money towards building more affordable housing. You know, there are plenty of things like that we can do. What about the other type of immigration where we have people who are coming here from other countries, for example, in many cases because they are essentially refugees of one kind or another. And in some cases, they're coming with skills. In other cases, they may not be. It's hard to know. Many of them are younger, as mm. opposed to people who are retiring into the state and offer a certain possibility anyway of being able to help with future labor shortages. But that, of course, requires a certain amount of A, acceptance, and B, ability to integrate those folks into the workforce in one way or another. In the report that uh, you worked on, for example, uh, did you see any signs that that is happening already or that it's not happening? We've seen that immigration is sort of increasingly a part of sort of solving this workforce and demographic challenge for Maine. One of the things, you know, you mentioned about people coming with skills. I think one of the things we've seen, and we wrote about this in our 2020 State of Working Maine report, particularly Black Mainers who were born overseas, even a number of Black Mainers who might be second generation immigrants or have deeper roots in this country. They often have trouble sort of translating the qualifications that they have to the appropriate kind of work. In the case of many folks, you know, there's clearly actually, I think, some discrimination at work there. And we need to work on making sure that Black, Indigenous and people of color in Maine sort of don't have their credentials or their skills downplayed, often through sort of, you know, this, this can sometimes happen even with people not realizing it through um, versions of implicit bias or discrimination. And so we need to be able to encourage employers there, punish sort of bad actors. But I think there's also something deeper going on with folks from immigrant backgrounds where you've got people who are, and you know, in Maine, a lot of these immigrants are predominantly from African countries, although there are increasing numbers from other parts of the world and from Latin America as well. But I think you do see that people maybe come over from another country and they have a foreign degree or some sort of qualification that's not necessarily recognized. And I think there's definitely more we can do to make sure that these credentials from often from sort of good colleges and universities are recognized in Maine and by Maine employers and licensing agencies. I think there's a lot the state could do there to make it less onerous for someone to get a new accounting license if they've been an accountant in another country, for example. It really benefits all of us to be able to have people be able to use the skills that they have. It's almost as cliche at this point, the idea of someone who you know, used to be like a heart surgeon and is now working as a taxi driver. 
but we really do see folks who have, you know, advanced degrees or even just graduate degrees who are, you know, working in pretty low wage jobs, often in the care industry, because that's the only opportunity that's available to them. So making sure people can use their skills and qualifications is a pretty big deal for those individuals, but just for the economy as a whole. And then there's sort of a related but more federal difficulty of ensuring that people can work as soon as possible rather than imposing what are often sort of multi-year bans on people working when they first come to the country, which doesn't really help anyone in any situation. So some sort of uh, testing out kind of process for reciprocal licensing from other places. I noticed on the summary of your report, you said that 25,000 workers in Maine are currently out of or were out of work in August of 2021 due to lack of childcare. So that was about a year ago. Not sure how that Mm. is, but it doesn't seem like that crisis has gone away. How much of a role do you see childcare playing moving forward, given that that's one of those jobs that Mm. is essential and often not as well paid and reimbursed, but extremely expensive to families? Yes, I, I think childcare is a big issue. I think it's only going to get more acute in the years to come if we don't do anything about it. Childcare is an issue where a particularly big role for state government and or federal government to play. And I think we've we've seen proposals like that at the federal level recently. President Biden's agenda at one point was to have a, a big federal childcare subsidy that didn't end up getting passed. But I think there's been a lot of talk about that. The reason why childcare is so important. It's often a, a necessary condition for a lot of people to work. You know, we know that it's especially acute for women who have children. If you look at the number of people who are out of the workforce because they have to look after children, it's much more common for women than it is for men. Mothers are about eight times as likely to be at home because they can't find childcare than men are. So it's a particularly important sort of like gender equity issue and making sure that men and women have equal opportunities. But sort of, as you said, it sort of it, it also just keeps a number of people either not working at all or working less than they would like to, holds the economy back in a number of ways. So it's very important, I think, from like a big economic perspective, but it's particularly important for state lawmakers to look at because we're stuck in this bind right now where if you talk to any childcare worker, they will tell you that the wages are too low and people aren't being paid enough for the kind of work they're doing. Anyone who owns a childcare center will hear you they have trouble holding on to staff for that reason. But then if you talk to any parent, and it wasn't that long ago that I had two kids in daycare at once, and that was a lot, you know, you talk to any parent and they'll tell you that childcare is unaffordable. So we have the price of it is too high for most parents, um, but the wages are too low for most workers. And so that's a situation where we just have to recognize that like childcare is a benefit to everyone in the economy overall, because it increases the dynamism of the economy and how much you know the economy grows in general. And we just have to be able to subsidize it in a way so we can pay higher wages and have lower prices for parents. And that requires sort of money being injected outside from the state in one way or another. Is there any estimate based on your experience if childcare were available, how much of a difference would that make in terms of the shortage of workers that seems to exist at the moment? Is there any kind of estimate about what sort of difference that would make other than, well, it's a real problem? I mean, it's hard to estimate sort of exact numbers. There have been, there's definitely been research. Internationally, there's been this question of why the United States has diverged from a lot of other sort of developed wealthy countries in terms of the number of people working. A lot of that has been attributed to the lack of affordable childcare here. If you look at the number of people who are working, you know, in Canada versus in the United States, for example. So we definitely know that it will bring more people into workforce. It's hard to estimate exactly. I mean, the numbers in Maine 
in the realm of tens of thousands of, of workers. It might not solve our, solve our workforce problems immediately, but I think it potentially has some downstream effects of you know encouraging people to stay in Maine and raise families. Again, harder to predict in the future, but I think is important. One of the other possibilities that has been raised in the near future, let's say a decade or two, of helping to solve workforce problems is automation. We're hearing, for example, that companies, large companies that have in the past offshored their workforces are talking about bringing them back because of supply chain difficulties and recently and so forth. One of the reasons is that we've automated a lot of the processes in other countries. We can bring that automation back and have American workers do it. And it might be a little more expensive, but not that much. We don't need as huge a number of people to produce whatever the product is. Is that something that you have heard discussed in terms of Maine, for example? It's an interesting topic. I haven't heard it discussed as much in Maine, but I think you're right to highlight that, you know, potentially there's a solution there or there's a, you know, there's a way to use automation to our advantage. I mean, I think in general, sort of the idea of automation can be scary for some folks. Um, I think especially the idea of maybe losing your existing job to a machine or a computer. I think it's something that we shouldn't be totally resistant to, but we also need to make sure sort of some of the effects are dealt with. So I think that can mean making sure that there are supports in place for workers to be able to retrain when they need to. Automation can fill in for workers who are completely missing, but there's always going to be a fear that it's going to displace some people who are already working. I don't think we should assume that large numbers of people are going to be made destitute by it. You know, in general, automate, economists will tell you that automation increases efficiency and generally works out better for people in general in the long run. But in the short run, we do need to provide sort of supports for people in a time of transition during those periods of automation. Were there any topics that we didn't cover that you think are important for people to be aware of or anything that you'd like to add for our listeners? Especially looking forward we covered a fair number of things. I think in general, we're still sort of grappling with some of the changes to people's outlook from the pandemic. The future of remote work, I think, is going to be interesting, making sure that that's more available than just to a small segment of relatively well-off people is going to be important so that other workers whose jobs can be done remotely sort of have the flexibility to do that. I think there's also emerging health concerns about like what the impact of long COVID is for workers. That's something that we're still, a lot of researchers are still trying to wrap their heads around, sort of people who still have COVID symptoms several months or several years after they caught the illness. What does that mean for them in the workplace? You know, are they covered by things like disability insurance? Are there OSHA regulations that cover those? So those are all still things that people are trying to work out that we need to look at. COVID clearly was a once in a lifetime event for most of us, and hopefully it's going to stay that way. But I think we also need to reflect the reality that there may be another public health emergency in the future, and that we should not just assume that we can breathe a sigh of relief that something like this has finished, but we should make sure we're better prepared for next time. That was James Mayo, economic policy analyst at the Maine Center for Economic Policy and author of the Center's State of Working Maine 2021 report. We'll put a link to the full report in the public affairs archives at www.weru.org for those who may be interested. You're listening to Maine the Way Life Could Be here on Community Radio WERU-FM. 
Our final guest today is former state legislator Andy O'Brien, a longtime Maine journalist who currently serves as communication director of the Maine AFL-CIO. We began by asking, my first question would be just in terms of how things are going for workers in the state. Are things getting better? Are things getting worse? And what are some examples? I think that conditions are slightly improving just in terms of the ability for workers to bargain for for better wages and better treatment. The pandemic really opened some opportunities for workers, and it also helped promote this idea that labor has value. You know, we had this whole discussion about frontline workers being quote unquote heroes and the importance of grocery store workers, nursing home workers that have been treated rather poorly and suffered with low wages for many years. After the pandemic, because a lot of workers didn't go back to work, uh, a lot of older workers retired and didn't go back. And we've seen what we're calling quote unquote the great resignation of a lot of workers quitting their jobs, they have more bargaining power because there is somewhat of a of a labor shortage. You know, we would call that a, a wage shortage in many ways. But workers are realizing I can just go and get another job. I don't have to stick around here and get treated poorly and, and struggle with low wages. I can go and find another job. At the same time, we're seeing workers who are like, if I form a union, they can't fire me because then they, they won't be able to find somebody to replace me. And so there's more leverage there where workers working in places like Chipotle have said they like working there, but it's unsafe. They don't have enough staff. And there are many problems that they feel if they had a union, they could have a stronger voice in the workplace and change things. We've also seen nurses at Maine Medical Center finally able to form a union after over 40 years of, of trying <laughs> unsuccessfully to form a union since the 70s. And a lot of that was just realizing through the pandemic just how much they were struggling and how difficult it was. And also the continued pressure put on them by administrators that makes it more difficult to do their job, more stressful because they don't have enough staff, We're relying on visiting nurses and things like that. And they've said enough is enough. We need to the power of collective action to, to change things. Also with a lot of nonprofits uh, right now at the ACLU, uh, Planned Parenthood, Preble Street, and other nonprofit workplaces are saying like, look, we're doing important work around civil rights and equity and inclusion, but we deserve that in the workplace as well. That's another sector that's organizing. Also academia, Bates College workers have organized. But at the same time, we have a lot of challenges. Wages haven't caught up with the cost of living. We have increased costs of a lot of consumer goods that have gone up in the aftermath of the pandemic. Rents and the cost of housing have skyrocketed in Maine. You can't afford to pay rent on the minimum wage even a little above the minimum wage. Workers at Bath Ironworks have been forced to live in their trucks, stay in motels, stay on campgrounds. People with decent jobs, they can't find housing. And that's a lot different. That's that's something that's changed where you generally saw it was very poor and destitute people. Now it's affecting people that would be considered more, I don't want to say middle class, but more middle income. One of our biggest disappointments is Congress's failure 
to pass the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which would really crack down on union bustings and put meaningful penalties on companies that break the law. Right now, if you fire a union organizer, you have to file an unfair labor practice with the National Labor Relations Board, which is incredibly Mm -hmm. understaffed. And you have a surge of organizing and unfair labor practice complaints to this board, which oversees collective bargaining in this country and, and, and labor relations. They're not able to respond in a timely manner. So companies can just drag out the process with appeals and appeals and appeals. And by that time, the union sort of, there's been staff turnover, organizers have been fired, and it's really hard to keep up that momentum. Maine, demographically, is the oldest state in the union. How are people who are concerned about labor, how, how are you thinking about that? It certainly offers some opportunity for increased leverage to workers. That is true in one sense. But it also may discourage companies from coming to Maine or from staying in Maine. How are you looking ahead for jobs and labor in the state? Yeah, that's a good question. First off, this is not something that's new for Maine. Our former state economist, Charlie Colgan, has been talking about this for many years, going back a decade ago. Maine, because of its aging baby boomer population and everybody retiring, we were set to lose, I think, 30,000 jobs in the next few decades, according to him. And this was like 10 years ago, because we don't have the younger population to replace them. He always said part of the way to address this is Maine's quote unquote quality of life premium, where people get paid less here because it's a good quality of life. That's not flying anymore. We've relied for too long on a low wage economy in the tourism industry, and people don't want to take it anymore. People are sick of working bad hours and stressful conditions like in restaurants and hotels. Wages have always been terrible. Back in the 90s, I remember working for five bucks an hour for three years for the same wage in a restaurant. And when I left, they replaced me with migrant workers from from Haiti. That's not a long-term solution for our problems, especially as this is hitting everywhere. Even in the union trades and the building trades, these good good jobs, they're still struggling to find people to hire. I mean, try to find a carpenter these days or or any kind of tradesman to do work on your house. It's it's very challenging because we, we need more of them. We believe that there needs to be a couple of different ways to address this, like the living conditions for workers. We need to have affordable housing. We need to have childcare. These are two income families, and it's really hard to go back to work if you don't have childcare. My wife and I just gave up when we had our child uh, and ended up, my wife ended up staying home because there was no childcare available in our area for, especially for infants. Uh, And it's incredibly expensive. You know, it costs more than tuition at the University of Maine for childcare these days. Those are a couple of ways that we could make it easier for people to come to Maine and take these jobs. You know, we have obviously some asylum seekers and things like that, but a lot of the people who are buying up the land here are professionals or retirees and professionals that can work from home. That's not a solution. We still need people to to build those houses, to clean the streets, to do all, you know, pay to, to maintain the roads. We need people that, that are in, you know, blue collar professions and service sector jobs. Whenever I hear a business complain about Nobody wants to work anymore. I'm like, for what wage and where are they going to live? 
here in Rockland, I saw a house. It, it was an apartment with no kitchen that was $3,500 in the summer a month. And I think like $1,700 in, in the winter. And I'm just like, I don't know who is going to rent that place. It's playing greed because of, you know, supply and demand. The changes are going to have to happen. You know, we're pushing, we've been pushing for these changes for a long time, but now it's hitting the pocketbooks of business people and they can't find workers. So they're going to be have, have to be part of the solution. Down here in Rockland, there's a fellow developer owns restaurants and, you know, retail stores now building essentially company housing for workers. I think we're going to see more of that. We just have to make it a welcoming place for people to come here and work. And I also think that we need to focus on quality jobs and what we're doing with the Peer Workforce Navigator, as well as the Maine Labor Climate Council, which is focusing on addressing the the biggest issue, which is climate change, I believe, and ensuring that the jobs that are created in a carbon-free economy are good-paying, quality jobs that maintain a, a stable living, you know, family wages. We had some of that back after the war and, and you know, the boom of the 50s and 60s and uh, with with mills, uh, with manufacturing in, in Maine that were these were good union jobs and they all ended up getting offshored and automated and closed their doors, moved to non-union areas in the South and then later in, in Asia and, and other places. I believe that we have an opportunity to bring back more quality jobs or replace those jobs with quality jobs in renewable energy. Historically, unions have often been not supportive of immigration, for example. I'm wondering now, particularly in Maine, as we as we look at Maine, with the aging population just in terms of medical care and nursing homes and that sort of thing, we're going to need a lot more people or somebody's going to have to really invent some very smart robots, one or the other. So I'm wondering at this point, what is, are the unions thinking about immigration of younger people to help take up some of this slack? Yeah, I mean, that's also a good question. We, we support a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented people in this country because we've recognized that there's always going to be people who come to this country and are, and are undocumented. The best way to bring us up to a higher standard is to give them full rights and citizenship so they too can form unions. <laughs> it's a real challenge to form a union if you're undocumented. Recently, we've been focusing a lot of effort on reaching out to the immigrant community in Maine, asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants, to try to get them interested in, in, in the trades and other union jobs where we're hiring. These are great jobs. And a lot of these people co are coming from other countries where they're, they're welders and they're builders and they, they do all kinds of work, but they end up getting stuck in low-wage jobs where they're not able to utilize their skills. And so we, we really want to recruit more of those people. And we would love to bring more younger immigrants to Maine and hopefully get them involved in unions to do some of this work that you mentioned, like in healthcare, long-term care, and some of the lowest paid occupations, unfortunately. There's a new report out from the Economic Policy Institute, which really focuses on these jobs, the lack of benefits, the lack of healthcare, the lack of scheduling that accommodates families. And this is another problem where we have essentially devalued 
these very important jobs in many ways because traditionally they've always been seen as female occupations. These jobs that are traditionally considered women's occupations have been devalued. And I think now we're coming around to the idea that they are tremendously valuable and the people doing this work deserve to be paid living wages and have the ability to form unions. But part of the problem is, is that we have a government that doesn't fund these programs properly. They've done some to address this in Augusta, particularly in Mill's latest budget, but it's not enough. We need federal involvement because so many of these nursing homes and home care agencies and things like that rely on government reimbursements for, for Medicaid and, and Medicare and stuff like that. So we would need more funding for those programs and recognize uh, the value of this work. And a lot of the people who are doing that right now are immigrants as well. Part of what we're, we want to do in the labor movement is, is, is lift up all workers, no matter what work they do. Certainly when you have a labor market like we have right now, where it's there are more companies hiring than there are workers applying for these jobs, that's a good thing for workers. It gives us more leverage and uh, it allows us to bargain more. I have always had this idea that we start having labor fairs instead of career fairs, where all the workers come out and they sit at tables and employers come in and audition, apply for uh, labor give them the resume, cover letter, three references from workers that say that they're a good boss, a good employer. Uh, and then they have to fill out an application with all the exact information from the resume. <laughs> it is good, but it doesn't mean it's going to last. Typically, these windows of opportunity are short. What we've tried to stress to both workers and union organizers is we have a short window when we can get people into unions or People can organize themselves into unions and lock down the benefits into a union contract so that they're guaranteed. Because what will happen is, and I lived through this through two recessions, is that all of a sudden you hit a recession and everybody's requiring a graduate degree and multiple certifications for a job that pays 13 bucks an hour. If we have more people in unions, we have more bargaining power as working people, regardless of whether you're in a union or not, because unions raise the bar. It's why you have in more heavily unionized states, you have higher standards of living, better health care, and, and just better wages. That's why there's so much organizing going on. Places that are organizing at the moment, which I think we'll hear about in the near future, but time is of the essence. With an aging population, and Maine is kind of the poster child for that, is it actually going to be possible, given the strata of different age groups in Maine, to actually fill not just tourist jobs, but year-round jobs that are necessary to maintain a society? We'll be forced to address this, these issues. I do think that there will be companies that have to close because they haven't been able to adapt. You already hear about in the newspaper periodically about companies that have closed down because they couldn't find enough labor. Well, they couldn't find enough labor for the wages that they were offering. The reality is if, if you can't adapt to conditions, if you can't pay the cost of labor, can't be in business anymore. I mean, that's the reality of anything, fuel costs or any, any costs for a business that go up, people either adapt or get out. And it's the same with labor. But we don't think of labor that way. We think of it as 
people should just be working for me no matter what. And I think companies have had it very good for a long time because we've had the reserve army of the unemployed that disciplines workers into accepting lower wages and crappy working conditions because they can be replaced. I don't think that society is going to collapse because we lose a lot of businesses, but I think it will be very challenging because immigration has to be a part of the solution. It can be hard to get people to move to a certain area, but I do believe if there's housing, if there's available childcare, if there are programs available to support workers, I think we'll get more workers in the door uh, and, and settling in Maine. But we, we need to stop looking at Maine as just a tourist economy, because then we just end up becoming a resort community for the rest of the country. And I'm really concerned about that. You know, I live in Rockland and I just see more and more houses being turned into Airbnbs and vacation rentals um, and retiree second homes or whatever. And I find it very disturbing. You know, population of Maine has gone up. We got 15,000 more people in the last census. I think we had some of the highest rates of migration into the state. We still are going to have situations, I think, where towns are not going to be able to function the way they used to. And this happens all the time in Maine, where all of a sudden there's just not enough people and infrastructure to, to keep, keep it going. But again, we have to adapt. And I think it'll be a situation where we have labor and businesses coming together and, and, and trying to figure out something. But the first thing is, like I said, we have to elect pro-labor legislators. Why we put out a, a yearly uh, legislators and congresspeople. It's why we put out a yearly scorecard of all of our legislate, uh, legislators in Maine, you know, scoring them on how they vote on key labor issues, which you can find at our website, maineaflcio.org. If we want to attract a workforce, we need to get back to the idea that workers provide value we create all wealth. Without us, the economy would grind to a halt. And so that means respecting their right to form a union, paying them well, and giving them a path to a dignified retirement. And we don't talk about that very often, but there's a lot of people who are retiring or like me are in their 40s or whatever, and they're starting to think about that and realizing they don't have anything because we've gutted pensions and retirement, things that we used to have. And we're facing a future where we're going to have a lot of elderly people living in poverty because Social Security hasn't kept up either. So we need to focus on workers and what they need rather than just on showering tax break and grants and everything to businesses. We need to actually look at what workers need, what working people need. We've just heard Andy O'Brien, Communications Director of the Maine AFL-CIO, with his observations on the situation of workers in Maine today and what it could be like in the near future. Looking at issues facing Maine and the world in the lifetimes of those alive today has been the focus of this series, Maine, the way life could be. As we look into that future, we wanted to hear more from younger Mainers about how these issues are affecting their lives today and their plans for the future, including whether they will stay in Maine. That will be the focus of our next program in the series, which will be broadcast on November 8th at 4 p.m., 
on that program. We'll be talking with people under 40 to hear how they see the challenges ahead for Maine and their ideas on how these challenges can be faced and turned into opportunities. If you are one of those folks and would like to be a guest on that program, please send an email to Maine the way life could be no spaces. That's Maine the way life could be at WERU.org. That's it for today's program. Maine the way life could be is made possible in part by a grant from the Maine Arts Commission. I'm Jim Campbell. And I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening and keep it tuned here to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill streaming and archiving at WERU.org and on the WERU smartphone app.